Welcome to This Week in Common Sense. And that's Paul Jacob speaking. My name is Tim Verkula, and we are going to go for the second week of June 2021. Let's take it from the top of the week, which was the colluders. This is one that, you know, we've talked so much about big tech and social media and uh, um, the fact that they, in essence, are censoring us. And, you know, I have a problem, you know, people can argue about the use of the word censor because they're not really the government, they're private. And of course, whether they're the government or private, if their job is to block information and invite people onto their open forum and then silence them and squelch what they have to say, I got a big problem with them anyway. And it's not a political problem. It's a social problem. I think they're rotten people and, you know, committing kind of a fraud and they're making billions while they commit this fraud. So I have some real bones to pick with them. But the reality is this isn't a rogue private company that just decided it wanted to invite everybody on board and then basically decide what they can say or not say. And as we found out last week, they, after spending how many months silencing and blocking posts about a potential lab leak and that it could be man-made, uh, COVID-19 could be a man-made coronavirus, certainly man-enhanced through gain-of-function research, um, all of a sudden now you can say it which just shows why in a free society, you do not want gatekeepers to tell people what they can say or not say, or what they can read or what they can hear. But this uh, particular script really makes, I think, a very, very important point, which is it's more than that. The, we, we all know, if we pay attention to politics and the news and so on, that they drag these CEOs of Twitter and Facebook and different companies before congressional committees and browbeat them and demand that they police their, their uh, you know, forums. And frankly, they have no power to do that. They have no authority to do that. They might have the power, uh, but they don't have the authority. And that is a First Amendment violation with the government basically intimidating and threatening private companies to do their anti-free speech work. But it's more than that, because it turns out now that we are aware that the Biden administration uh, is in touch with Twitter and is working with Twitter uh, to basically say, hey, here's what you should you know, allow to be published, here's what you shouldn't be allowed, and so on and so on. And we're gonna find out more because a group, and I'm not super familiar with this group, uh, but I already like them. They're called the American Freedom Law Center. And they are suing both Twitter and President Biden, I take it the Biden administration, because the whole question is not just is the government 
in essence, kind of pushing them or trying to lobby them to do certain things. Um, they have deputized these companies in, in a way that's what's being alleged. And I think it's absolutely true. Um, but they, they are working with these companies to get these companies to do what the government is forbidden to do on their own. It'd be like saying, you know, the, uh, the government can't tell you what to eat, but then the government runs to every grocery store in town and does all kinds of things to say, well, don't, don't package that. If you do that, we might have to do an investigation or we might have to pull you before a congressional committee. But here's the other thing that, uh, and I don't know, Tim, uh, I've never seen uh, any in-depth piece on the amount of money in government contracts that is being pulled in by Google and Twitter. And then I don't know as much about Twitter and whether that would fit the same, the same uh, kind of situation as Google and Facebook, but these companies are in bed with the government. They make millions from government contracts. They're being browbeat by government officials. They're being colluded with, which is why we called it the colluders by government officials. If, if you believe in robust debate and you are a First Amendment person, which as we often say here, the First Amendment is America's gift to the world. It's the best thing we've got going. If you like the First Amendment, you have to be concerned when the government is doing everything imaginable to get private companies to do evil, unconstitutional speech squelching. And uh, it's, you know, I, I, uh, I did a rant on Facebook, uh, which we turned into actually the next day's uh, uh, script kind of, um, but uh, when I did the rant, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't a script. It was just kind of a, a, a quick rant. But one of the things I said in the rant that I didn't say in the script and the script we're talking about now is Tuesdays, the man, the media missed. And I basically in this rant, I made the point that I read a newspaper every day. I read online a bunch of different papers and I have two papers I, I get on a, on a regular basis at home. And one of them is the Washington Post. And I won't do a long, I'm not going to fight with my wife here on the podcast, but I have wanted to cancel the post and it is all her fault. Anyway, <laughs> uh, um, but I still love her. Anyway, the, but I read a newspaper that I have to read very carefully. And of course, we probably always should do this anyway, read everything very carefully and look, what's the, what's the bent of the person who's sending you this story? Um, but I read a newspaper that I think is an enemy of me and anybody who wants a society in which the government doesn't control every thought, action, work, so on and so on, deed. Um, and it's somewhat frustrating to just see the mountain of misinformation spin. Uh, and then I'm posting this, I said, on Facebook, a, a social media platform 
that I hope goes bankrupt, that I think is a terrible company, and that I think people associated with it in 10, 20 years are going to be deeply ashamed that they had anything to do with it. But it, it's kind of funny to be communicating and receiving information in, in a system in which you don't trust anybody. You don't like the people who are providing the news because you realize they're only giving you what they want you to have. You don't like the platform that you got onto to communicate with your friends and find new people and talk about issues because once it got you on and got your photos and everything and got you used to it, it's decided it gets to dictate what you get to say and what you don't get to say. And of course, anyone who's on Facebook at all knows that these are not, you know, well-reasoned rules. They're not people who are really looking at all the fine points. This is kind of a wild al algorithm. And then in different cases, people who, who have no business uh, policing other folks and have no rhyme or reason to the decisions they're making when they police folks. But let me just go to uh, Tuesday's script and talk about Peter Daszak, who is the president of EcoHealth Alliance. And this will, I think, tell you everything you never wanted to be warned about, our media and our social media. Now, Daszak, nobody seems to know who he is. You never heard his name much, except he's the guy who wrote the letter and got the other scientists together to do the letter saying that uh, a lab leak is not very likely at all. It really should be dismissed. This is a, a great lab. That's not a problem. He got 27 scientists. Now, three of those scientists have since backed off and said, no, we, we don't agree. We do think you ought to be looking into the lab leak. But who is this guy who did this? He wrote this letter in The Lancet, and that's the British uh, uh, medical journal, yes. Kind of AMA for Britain type journal. The JAMA. It's the JAMA equivalent. Yeah, it's the JAMA of Britain. And, and he, it, this piece, surely The Lancet checked who Daszak wants. And when the entire American media, and I take it other media around the world, might want to run with the fact that, hey, this letter of scientists, you know, it's almost like scientists wrote a letter. There must be a scientific consensus. Anyway, that's the way it was played. The scientists think that this lab leak is ridiculous. So who is the guy saying the Wuhan lab leak is a ridiculous thing and that's what the scientists all believe? It is the scientist, the doctor, close enough. Uh, he is a scientist. So it's the doctor who's Peter Daszak, who got the grant, Echo Health Alliance got the grant from NIH, the National Institute of Health, took our tax dollars in that grant, and then sent 600,000 of that to the Wuhan Institute of Virology. 
Now, now this is the bag man. This is the, and, and look, nothing wrong with taking money, giving it away to something else. That's, you know, I raise money all the time from people and then, you know, give it to some campaign to do something. Nothing wrong with that. But this is the guy, this is the most compromised scientist in the whole world on this subject. And the Lancet prints his letter without any mention that he is completely compromised. And then the American media just amplifies it a zillion times and speaks about it without ever giving us any clue who this guy is. I mean, I guess either they're in on the scam and they just want to scam us all the time and tell us, you know, information that without giving us the real scoop, or they were clueless themselves. And can we continue to get information and have any trust in it from people who are either that much colluding about spinning the news instead of reporting it, or that incompetent? Well, the answer is no, we can't trust them. Someone the other day asked me, what media sources do you trust? <laughs> I just thought, that's, that's gotta be a trick question, none because you have to verify. And there are some that I trust more. I love Glenn Greenwald, <clears throat> but I think you have to read his stuff and, and at least be questioning. And, and uh, who is it? Cheryl Atkinson, who has a, has a program full measure. Do you still subscribe to Epic Times? I do, I do. And I get their paper every Thursday. And of course I get it online. And Epic Times is, I mean, they have a point of view but I appreciate that their point of view is just, it's out there. They're, it's owned by former, or not former, current Falun Gong members that, um, you know, China hasn't been able to murder. <laughs> so they're really fairly anti-CCP. And, but they, they wear that on their sleeve. There's no, there's no fool in you. And, and I, one of the reasons I subscribed is because I wanted to get as much news about what China's doing. And I knew, you know, the Epic Times isn't going to sugarcoat anything China is doing. Whereas the Washington Post, the New York Times, other publications, Wall Street Journal, uh, I mean, many of them, the Wall Street Journal, Washington Post have gotten $10 million in ad revenue from the CCP. I mean, the, the Chinese Communist Party, the Chinazis are, are uh, you know, customers of those papers. And so anyway, but getting, you know, if all you read was the Epic Times and you just believe that was the <clears throat> objective source of everything, well, you'd have kind of a skewed opinion of what's going on. The problem is almost everybody who reads the Epic Times, I think knows this is what their position is. And you always, no matter what, wanna get other sources. But I know all kinds of people who, if they read it in the Washington Post, the New York Times, I mean, you, I have people who comment, well, this is the Epic Times. Well, I can't trust that source. Whereas if I had said the Washington Post said it, then, oh, absolutely, that's got to be the gospel truth when I don't know of the Epic Times spinning and lying about stories the way that the Washington Post has. And it's, uh, it's not going to be as in-depth on all the American news and so on. But, uh, but I've enjoyed it very much. And, uh, and it's a good, 
you know, if I think if you're reading one or two papers or I mean, it, today you can get so much media everywhere. Problem is so much of it is being fed by the same stream. You know, if, if almost every paper in the country is reprinting Washington Post and New York Times stories. So when you think about the power that the Washington Post and the New York Times has, and they also impact how television covers things and how radio covers things and how bloggers cover things. Um, so they have tremendous impact, but it's not just that they're big papers in big important cities, it's that they are in almost every paper in America in, in one story or 20. Um, but anyway, <clears throat> going on that long tangent, um, so Peter Daszak, um, does this letter, it gets played up as, you know, some sort of scientific, you know, statement of consensus. And of course, anytime you hear scientific consensus, you know, that one word is incorrect and that's scientific because we don't decide science by consensus. Um, and someone's pulling your leg when that happens. If they're talking about political science, not, and I don't mean poli-sci in school, I mean politicized science. And, and that's what so much of this is about, is that what we realize here is it's not just that the media spends it. Of course, the whole scientific government-funded scientific community has, which it's not only in the U.S., but also in China. It seemed like the scientists were kind of protecting each other's back so that we continue to rake in these grants rather than speaking truth to power. And so the corruption is, is widespread in this. And now we know that there are doctors, there are scientists who seem to be more political than they are pro-science, and they also seem to be, what's, what's the, uh, the term for it? They're, they're uh, well, I can't think of that. I can't think of the word. Are you looking for mercenary? Yeah, it's, yes, that it's, it, it is, they are, we like to think of scientists as people who would just, if no one paid them, they'd be in the lab doing their work because this is what they're about. But apparently they like to get paid too. And they're more, they're just as willing as the business interest or the labor interest or any other interest in getting theirs. And especially it's a bigger and bigger problem. The more the government is funding everything. If the government funds all science, science is going to be very pro-government. So it's a big problem, but, um, but Daszak is not through with just this phony letter. And frankly, our media doesn't report this part either. So here's, here's this is a trifecta, uh, a trifecta by uh, uh, Dr. Daszak. And here's the second, uh, a hat trick. Here's his, his second goal past the, uh, the media watchdogs in our country. So, People remember that the, the China finally, a year plus after a pandemic hits the world coming from China, China decides, okay, it might let some people in to investigate. They're gonna let the WHO in, the World Health Organization. And uh, 
And of course, it's all controlled in ways that are ridiculous. Every person who comes in from outside China is connected up with a Chinese scientist and they're only allowed to go certain places. They go to the Wuhan lab and are lectured to for a couple of hours about how wonderful it is. Now, that's not an investigation. That is a photo op. And actually, it wasn't even a photo op. It was like a, uh, let's get together and we'll tell you how good we are. And then you can go home. Um, there was one American scientist who took part in that. And lo and behold, it was Dr. Dasik. And so when they come back and say, it's, un you know, the only thing they really said, having perform this little dog and pony show for a few days in China, not having really investigated anything in any serious way, but they still were able to say one thing, a lab leak is extremely unlikely. So you've got the letter in a major, the top medical journal in Britain being controlled by the bag man for the Wuhan lab. You've got the investigation that everybody knows is phony from the get-go, but they don't even know the first of how phony it is because the American scientists representing uh, us on that trip and, and going to find out the truth is the bag man for the Wuhan lab. But it's not, it doesn't end there. Oh, so. Um, so what's the third place horse? Well, the third place horse is that Facebook, and they've already, you know, they apologized up and down for having censored these posts about, you know, man-made stuff. They were so contrite that you could hardly be mad at them. Oh, wait, 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 wait. Oh, no, they weren't sorry at all. They didn't say any apologies. What am I thinking? Nothing. Not a single G-shucks were sorry. Instead, they just changed the policy. Now you can talk about this. Now you can talk about that. Now you can talk about this. Do we really want to be part of, to, to like be part of their um, money-making operation when all they're doing is telling us what we can or can't say? But on this issue, <clears throat> at least Facebook went to the experts and got somebody who has some scientific back background, somebody who knows something about the Wuhan lab to be advising them on which, you know, which posts should be censored and which shouldn't. What should we allow people to say? What should we not allow people to say about this? They got, you guessed it, Dr. Daszak. That's who was their advisor. They went to this company and this company's main advisor on this was Dr. Daszak. So he's either tricked or colluded with the biggest medical journal in Britain. That story has gone all over the, our country and the world. He then has put himself into this investigation and pronounced, well, he went to the WHO investigation, the phony WHO investigation. And, and, and then third, he's got his hands in the pie of how do we censor people on Facebook? And all of this comes out 
not because the Washington Post or the New York Times do some expose, not because of, you know, media people that we think of, the big shots bringing us this story. No, it has come out piece by piece by the little guys finding out this information. And it wasn't one story that connected all three. I remember when I saw the third story, it was like, wait a second, this is the same guy who, you know, this is a joke. We basically, all of our news around this issue has been dominated by the very guy who had every reason to lie to us and hide any problems from that Wuhan lab. That is, it's just, you know, you, it's hard to think of, of how, how, do we, how do we get in this situation in which this kind of scam could be pulled off in so many different ways? It implicates our media as being worthless. If they lie to us all the time and they hide information, um, you know, the good liars mix it with some truth to trick you. They don't just tell lies 100% of the time. And so the best that can be said about our media is they're good liars. They're effective liars. And that's not very good for us. Our social media censors, they're not helping us find the information. They're trying to stop us from finding the information. And then we look at our scientific community. Surely the scientists are good. I mean, what's a, what's a, What's uh, the, the uh, science guy, Bill Nye, the science guy? I mean, they're all wonderfully funny people. Of course, he's not even really much of a scientist. Really? But, yeah. but we now realize, you think you can trust the scientific community? You can't. They are on the take mm -hmm. for themselves. They will color the science for their own benefit. This is, uh, it's, mm -hmm. and, you know, you kind of hate to, to, be the bearer of bad news all the time, but what can you do? I mean, you, at least we have to know the truth. It's kind of how I feel when I uh, talk sometimes about uh, China and the threat that they are, I think, to the world and especially to people closer to them like Taiwan and Hong Kong, which they've already pretty much taken away all freedoms. But I don't always have the answer of what we're gonna do, what we should do. Sorry about that, I wish I did. Um, but I know if we keep aware of what's actually happening, if we don't lie to ourselves, even though our, our scientists, our media, our social media are all lying to us, if we don't lie to ourselves, we are going to figure out what to do. And that's why I think, I mean, truth will set us free. And so we just have to keep talking about these things. And I think the more people realize how, outrageous this story has been covered this is a pandemic this is you know they want to talk constantly about what is it six hundred thousand americans have now died of covid and yet you make that a big thing which of course it is and then you're gonna lie to us about it you're gonna you're gonna try to scam us and use this for political purposes and and before we move on to uh wednesday's commentary which is senatorial senility. Every time I see this picture that Jim Gill, who does the graphics at thisiscommonsense.org, this picture of the senator's hands, the elderly hands over all the money and so on, 
uh, you just you have to go to thisiscommonsense.org, June 9th, senatorial senility. Uh, you'll like the picture. It's not that pretty, but it's instructive. And I think you'll, you'll like the commentary. But I wanted to just point out as we leave the, the subject of, um, of how this pandemic has been handled, that at least on the media side, I think it bled over into both scientists and social media and so on. I think most of us know where this came from. And it's not that the media hasn't spun things and been dishonest from an objective journalist standpoint in the past before President Trump. But I think that, uh, and I don't think I'm alone. Uh, and it doesn't mean that Trump did a great job with COVID or that he did a great job. It really doesn't say much about Trump. It says a lot about our media that I believe the whole reason that it couldn't be China's fault, it couldn't be a lab leak, is because the media wanted to beat Donald Trump over the head and defeat him in the election. And so if it's China's fault, well, then he might, he might not get the blame and people might vote for him instead of against him. And then the media wouldn't get the candidate that they wanted. And of course, we all have a right to want the candidate we want, but we have to remember if we're getting our news from media that is more interested in us voting the way they want us to vote than in giving us the information to make our own decisions. They are not our friends. They are our enemies. And it's, it's sad, but it's just absolutely true. So we, we move on. Did you have any uh, further comments or have I beat that horse enough, Tim? Well, I think that in addition to wanting their candidate, they want their system. They demand their system, and their system is progressive, progressivism. And that was a system from the beginning in the 19th century was ruled by experts, ruled by college graduates who know better than businessmen and consumers what people should do. And so they love the system of subsidy, you know, taxpayer subsidy of science and uh, rule by scientists and all the experts. And we have to defer, defer to them in everything because they know what they're talking about. We don't know anything. We can't make any decisions about whether we have an injection or not. That's not up to us. We need to be pushed into it uh, by almost any means necessary. And that seems to be what they're aiming for. Uh, this, this ideology of expertise, but it's not expertise. It's credentialist, yes. bureaucratic, it's privilege. It's oh, privilege. It's literally privilege. It yes, literally privilege. And that actually, and the reason I brought this up was not merely to emphasize that, because that's my main hobby horse and why I hate progressivism. I don't hate very many things in this world, but I hate progressivism because I think it's actually quite pernicious because it doesn't understand the context. A scientist isn't a scientist because he has a badge that he got a degree he has a subsidy. As we said before, I said last week, we say it all the time, you and I both say it, a scientist is a person who engages in the scientific method. And so it's the context of his work. Well, that context is very much like the marketplace, where people decide what to do with their money and cooperate individually uh, as much as they can. And that sort of gets to your uh, Wednesday piece, Senatorial Senility, because now we have a entrenched elite 
that sticks there forever, you know, grim death does not even have a purchase on their minds, apparently, uh, unless they're unless they're getting adenochrome uh, and uh, blood transfusions from children. I don't know about that. But uh, these people have been in there a long time. And you're talking about that here, the age of the Senate, the age of politicians general. They're very old. And uh, the whole system and they, the system they've set up is to protect their privilege, is to protect not their use to the American people, not the system so that it works for responsibility and accountability. It's to get them in power and keep them in power forever and ever. Amen. And uh, the Washington Post, uh, Roxanne Roberts did a uh, opinion piece. Uh, actually, it may have been a, uh, just a feature, not an opinion piece. Uh, take that back. But uh, on us now having the oldest uh, Senate in American history. And uh, what is that? 64, 64 and a little change is the average age of a senator. And of course, she also talked about the octogenarians. There are five senators who are over 80. Dianne Feinstein from California, 88. Uh, Charles Grassley, who's the Iowa congressman, who's 87, about to be 88. Richard Shelby, who's actually stepping down in 2022, uh, who will be 88 then. Uh, and Senator Jim, James Inhofe, Jim Inhofe, uh, who's 86, and Pat Leahy, who's 81. And they talk about, uh, what is it, 23% are in their 70s and so on. Only one. And this is this was kind of what stuck with me a little bit, too, is only one is below 40. Uh, and that's John Ossoff, who was just elected in Georgia. And I very quickly thought, well, gee, he's he's like less than half the age, you know, about half the age of the average senator. I don't like him any more than I like them. I mean, I don't think he's like the the answer. And and I think it's good to have people who are young and old and different having a certain because we want to be represented. But if we had people who are, you know, someone in their 90s could do a good job in Congress. Now, most 90 year olds, I think they're they're going to be too old. But, you know, there's a lot of 50 year olds who I think might not have the physical uh, stamina to be in, in Congress. Maybe they don't have the, the mental acuity anymore or in their 70s. People are different. And it's not the age. To me, the problem with these octogenarians is that Feinstein has been in for 28 years and she's the newbie. Shelby's been in for 40. Inhofe for 43, or Grassley's been in for 40. Shelby's been in for 43, Inhofe for 34, and Leahy for 46 years. Now, I added together, this is in Congress, because I added together House and Senate as long as it was consecutive. In other words, if they took a break between the House and Senate, as sometimes they do, usually not, um, then I would only count the consecutive. But this, these are people who've been in Washington for three and four and almost five decades consecutively, all that time making decisions for everyone else. And it's just, we want people who are one of us, who when they make decisions have the same kind of concerns we have. 
And you can imagine that if you go into, you know, you're, you're going to a new city, a new system, you're going to be a member of Congress, you're in Washington, it's going to have some effect on you even immediately, because we're all affected by the stimuli around us. But when you're there term after term, year after year, um, I mean, it's just, it's, it's the sort of thing where you don't have to be liberal, conservative, in the middle, Republican, Democrat. You look at the American people, they like term limits. And they like term limits because they realize the longer these fellas and women are in Congress, the less they represent them. And let's face it, our whole system is representative government. So if the representative part is gone, you're just left with government. <laughs> I'm, not very, I'm not very fond of government without the representative part. So the other thing that I found laughable about this particular piece by uh, Roxanne Roberts in the Washington Post is this comment that she makes trying to explain why these folks are in Congress so long. Senior senators often stay for decades because voters are reluctant to give up the perks of incumbency, seniority, committee chairmanships, and all the money poured into their states. Now, <laughs> that is laughable. Absolutely ridiculous for a whole host of reasons. First of all, voters, you know, you're a committee chairman. Well, you know, uh, there are all kinds of people who have been committee chairman. I have a link in this piece to a piece we wrote uh, back in 2017 when Thad Cochran, who was a senator from Mississippi and was chairman. I can't remember what the uh, what was he chairman of? I don't think I have it here, but uh, he, with the, the title of the commentary we wrote back in 2017, is, what was it, Frail? I better go get the link. I can't remember anything these days. Uh, I believe it was, uh, oh, it was on the, Frail and Disoriented, because that's how he was described by the reporters after he did a press conference in which he basically couldn't respond to questions in any way that made people think he understood what the question was. He had had some physical problems, uh, but these were, you know, these were age-related uh, problems where he just didn't have the mental faculties at that point. He was confused. And of course, that could be a temporary thing, but whatever it is, he had some serious problems in terms of being able to help lead our country. And, and yet, you know, finally, thank goodness, uh, about a year after, uh, and less than a year, about six months after uh, I wrote that, he did step down. Uh, so great. But, you know, you think about Strom Thurmond and you think about these other folks. Um, Strom Thurmond, at the end of his time, I mean, he had a lot of seniority, but he liked, you know, he needed people to wheel him around and he wasn't really with it. And so the idea that these people are just providing something that the voters can't live without is a joke. 
what they have is every advantage in the world. They have the power of their seat and their vote and their ability to pick up the phone and call people in the bureaucracy and maybe move some impediments or put up some impediments. Um, and they have the ability because they have that power to raise a ton more money than challengers have, but they also have all kinds of other advantages. They have the natural name ID. They're going to get coverage all the time. So the name ID grows and grows. If you're a challenger, you might not get so much coverage. The average incumbent spends more money in taxpayer funded mailings, franked mail, these newsletters that they send their constituents, than the average challenger spends in their entire campaign. Meaning you and I, the taxpayer, provides more money to the, to the incumbent than the average challenger has in their entire campaign. So there's some huge problems with that. But the, the other thing that just struck me as so ridiculous is this idea that voters somehow want these guys to be there forever. Because when they do get good competition, they do lose. The other thing is, what's the purest option that voters have ever had to say whether they want these people to stay so long? Well, it's term limits. And every time I... I was involved with U.S. terminals and a lot of term limit initiatives in the 1990s, and of course, some in, in the uh, after the 1990s, and they win. They win all the time. And these term limit initiatives aren't about, hey, we'd like you to term limit all of Congress. I mean, they did want that, but you can't vote that in your state. What each state that passed this was saying is, we want to limit our own. Only a couple of the states said ours wouldn't go into effect until a certain number of other states, 12 or 25, did it. So all of these voters <clears throat> were in essence saying, yes, I believe that I will get better representation by having regular rotation. Even if no other state does it, then I will get from my long-serving incumbents. So, you know, this, this not only is this presented uh, as the problem is that they're getting old. Well, the problem is you can't get them out, that they're entrenched, but it's also acting as if the voters somehow are the ones who want it this way is, if it weren't so funny, it'd be even more offensive, but. We're going to have to talk about the theory of, uh, Term limits again someday. I don't think we've ever really had a good term limits episode of this week of common sense in the sense of going through some of the data. Uh, for instance, we've had several commenters recently, like Daniel Kean McKiernan, uh, make uh, caveats about term limits that we probably should address at some point. But I don't think that point is right now, uh, considering that we have two more to go for this week. Yes. Well, and, and the truth is... Uh... We should some, it, the debate has, the debate for so long has been so strongly, you know, you, you poll and it's 78%, it's 82%. And of course, back in the 90s, you did have a lot more debate because you had all these initiatives, you had the vote in Congress. So it's almost as if the debate has, like it, at, at this point, you don't see many people 
spend a lot of time arguing against term limits because they realize that's kind of been supportive. But obviously, it still makes sense to make all the arguments because it also will inform folks on what kind of what kind of system do you want? Uh, because a lot of people, do you want expertise? Well, sure, I want expertise. But do you want a system in which people are there forever claiming how expert they are? And do you want a government run by experts? And you push that a little bit and people say no. I mean, there are academics who have studied the effects of term limits and so forth. So that could be referenced. And then there are a lot of cliches that we get. Uh, everybody's heard the most, the most famous cliche in politics, it seems to me, is that we already have term limits. They're called elections, uh, which is the most vomit-inducing one to me. And I don't really want to talk about it, but there are other ones as well. But speaking of vomiting, the situation <laughs> in Baltimore... Uh, that you dealt with on Thursday. Here again, we have a problem of people in power being pretty impervious to what their jobs really are and also to real strong feedback, negative feedback they get. And at negative on what they're doing, but this story in Baltimore, what positive feedback, what better way for people to say, hey, something's got to change here but, but to take two or three steps to say, we want to do it in such a way that is totally pro-city and pro-city government. What we're talking about is uh, balking in Baltimore. And what they're balking at is business people in Fells Point, which is one area in the city. They're balking at paying their taxes for the very simple reason that they don't get any services. And they're not really, they're not the usual tax resistor because they are talking about, and they haven't stopped paying any taxes yet, but they wrote a letter to the mayor and they said, we are considering putting our tax payments into an escrow account that we would then release to the city when it starts doing things like picking up the trash and stopping people from being murdered on the street in front of our in front of our business and all kinds of things. And so, and we're seeing this around the country. I mean, we've done quite a few pieces on what's happened in, in Portland, but I mean, and, and nobody ever cries any tears for the businessman, but you know that there's a bunch of uh, businessmen and women in, ba in Portland who they can't, they can't open their business. They haven't been able to for months and months. At a certain point, you go bankrupt. And, and what has the government done? Well, the government kind of let everything run wild for a, a very, very long time. And, and that's what's going on in Baltimore. You really, really, since Freddie Gray and that incident where the police had him in the back of the car and he ended up having some sort of contusion to the head and ended up dying in custody. Um, and, you know, it's the sort of thing where it's not as if someone purposely killed him, but there was neglect and everything else. Well, there was a lot of anger, not surprising. But the mayor there said something to the effect of, we want to let people get their rage out or whatever. And they had all kinds of looting and burning and, you know, if the police behave badly, looting somebody's store or burning it down, I, and I know if you believe in like a Marxist revolution where 
all the business owners should be killed and all their property expropriated. Well, then this sounds like a great kind of way to go about it. But, you know, very few people really believe that. And, and it's just, it's Baltimore has been in a tough place for a long time. And at a certain point, you are, it just be, begins to be a race to the bottom the drain, you're circling the drain because these business people, they can't stay forever. They can't afford to allow themselves to lose money week after week, month after month and put themselves at risk of being killed and everything. And they're not asking the, the police or the city to do miracles. Pick up the trash, for goodness sake. Have some police out there stopping people from doing criminal acts. So it's, it's uh, but the truth is the response that they've gotten so far from the mayor and from, you know, the city officials has been pretty, well, whatever. <laughs> you know, they, they're not, they're not talking about, we see the problem, we're going to start doing our job. And, and it's, man, it's just pathetic. And to me, one of the worst things, Baltimore has been a problem city for a long time. Lots of poverty, not well run. And, but, but this is happening all over the country in the sense of government is fine to take our tax dollars, but doesn't really believe they have to do anything. And years ago, you had that Supreme Court case that said, you know, the police don't really have to protect you. And government is kind of, again and again telling us, give us your money. We don't have to protect you. We don't have to keep your streets clean. We don't have to pick up the trash. We don't have to fix the potholes. We really don't have to do anything. Give us your money. And, and what is this? Are you becoming anti-government or something? So this, uh, this is a real problem. And it actually feeds into uh, Friday's commentary. Sorry, or not sorry, safety or not. And this is once again, and this involves COVID and, and uh, the vaccines and so on. So it's connected to that story, but it really at its, at its essence is the same sort of sort of thing where the government says, nah, we really don't, we really don't have to do what we said we're always going to be doing. And here's the, here's the situation. OSHA, the Occupational Safety and Health Act, uh, administration. It was created through the Occupational Safety and Health Act. Um, their whole job is to make workplaces safe. So they are kind of pro <clears throat> vaccines because, you know, they're part of government. These are going to help. So they're encouraging businesses to encourage their workers, maybe even require their workers to get the, the vaccine, one of the vaccines. And uh, but then it turns out that they also say, which seems reasonable enough, that if as a business you are requiring your workers to take this vaccine, well, then you are liable if there's all kinds of problems with the vaccine, like they get sick and die or just get sick and are harmed in some way. And of course, uh, as we were coming on tonight, there was the story, uh, I guess there was a Tucker Carlson piece on, on um, COVID. And I don't remember exactly uh, all of it because I watched it for about four seconds. I didn't get to see the whole thing before we got on, but you mentioned it to me. So 
tell people what the uh, what his his comment was. I mean, he had about 18, 19 minutes on COVID uh, tonight. I think it was tonight. Uh, and it's it's mainly about uh, young men, uh, teenage boys, uh, and their rise in a certain type of heart disease. Israeli health officials released a report showing that vaccinated young people, particularly young men, were developing a potentially fatal complication, a heart inflammation called myocarditis. And they were developing it at extremely high rates. Uh, they just have been having... Uh, problems with the vaccine for young people, young men, young with boys. The FDA, though it hasn't gone through, you know, its usual rigmarole, as you mentioned in your piece for Friday, is extending the exception uh, for younger and younger people. So they're trying to get more and more young people to do it, even though, as Tucker Carlson, with a number of experts, you know, with a number of his people on the show, have right. explained very carefully young people are the least susceptible to COVID. Right. Not only do they not get it very bad in very large numbers, it's really, really insignificantly small. Uh, they also don't transmit it. So they're not a problem. Right. And so what we have here is some sort of mania, which is very hard to understand, by the way, uh, in, until you get to dealing with people who are going crazy, people who've been somehow manipulated into going crazy. This whole thing about having young people getting the, the vaccines uh, makes no sense. Uh, also, I think with college-age kids, they're now requiring. That's the other thing that, that Tucker right. mentioned. But right. there, the incidence of problems involving the vaccines are not insignificant. In just a few months, with this set of vaccines, the number of vaccination deaths is double what it was for the whole year in the previous year. They for all vaccines. Wow. So that's a that's a not insignificant change. Now, there's probably a lot more vaccines because they're really pushing this thing. My biggest problem is that when you sent me the link to that video, the first video, the first link I hit, that video has been taken down. And the one time that there was the the J&J &J vaccine and the problems with with that um they pulled it off the market for a little bit. And it turned out that the risk that they had found from the people who, and what was the, I can't remember the specific thing. Seems like it was, but anyway, I, I won't speculate. So you've got this situation where they pull one of the vaccines off the market. And the polling shows that the public's confidence in the vaccine goes way up which they thought was surprising, but I think makes perfect sense. Of course, mine went up when I saw that because mine goes way down when I see that Tucker Carlson's talking about some problems with the vaccine and it's being squelched. And that's, I mean, that is the worst of all. But here's here, the, the point of this piece, because we, we got into some of the problems with the vaccine uh, that have just come out before we had had finished this piece. But the interesting thing here is, so the OSHA says to businesses, you are respond if you force your, you know, not force, but require your employees to get this, you're somewhat responsible. And then they back off it. There's a report in the Epic Times, which we talked about earlier. And they point out that all of a sudden OSHA says, no, you don't have to report the problems. 
That's what they're backing off of is having to report problems from the vaccine. Not they're still saying that you should require if you want to get in the vaccine and they're still saying that it's a good thing and also that you're liable in case something goes wrong but they're basically saying we don't want to hear about it right right i mean that's quite a that's quite a uh, policy there <laughs> no and that's uh, i one of the reasons it's so absurd is the occupational Sa safety and health administration is supposed to be about safety and health so to not want to know when there's problems is to not really want to protect safety and health. So it's, it's, you know, again, it's government saying we need this group to do, to fill this role. And then in essence, just sloughing off the role whenever it fits. And of course here, I think it's all politics. There's some suspicion that maybe the Biden administration said, Let's not push for these to come out. We don't want to hear about these problems. And, and of course, if businesses know that they might be liable, they're not likely to yell about it either. Now, of course, their employees might figure out, hey, I do want someone to know because you are liable. But this, this constant shut up, block the video, you know, ban this person from the, the network because they said something they shouldn't say. And then months later going, oh, well, it turns out that really they were right. This is, this is the world we're going to live in. If, if experts and politicians decide what can be said and what can't be said, we are, what is it? Uh, you know, it was, I think, Jefferson who said that if we, uh, if Washington were to tell us when to reap and sow, that we would all want for bread, but we're gonna want for any knowledge of anything. If, if they can control, I mean, this is, this is Chinese inspired type, you know, their, their whole um, internet where it's all censored. You know, when, when we first heard about the internet, what we loved about it is that Governments and powerful people couldn't block people from communicating with each other. And, and of course, now you have a totalitarian state in China that blocks everything all the time. But while that's happening and we are frightened by the power they have and the ideology they have, we see that same ideology in all kinds of little ways and not so little ways all over the place in our own country. So it's, it's you know, and, and I guess I just don't see, I know, I know good people who are not nearly as worried about this as I am. And, uh, and I think in the end, they're, they're gonna realize they were badly wrong, but we will not uh, be the sort of country that we are today, which is not, quite as good a country as I'd like us to be, but we're not going to be anywhere close to that. If we can't, can't debate any issues, can't find out about science, everything is said by some expert who's got, you know, the political imprimer that, uh, Hey, you're, you're the person who can speak because of your credentials and we've put you on this pedestal. This is, this is the antithesis 
of everything about America. And it's, it's just, it's as if, well, I, I just sometimes want to pinch myself and wake up. This is a great time to be alive because it'll be fun to see how it all plays out. Somehow our elites just don't seem very good, yet they certainly think they need to be in charge. And I don't see how any of that follows. They've proven themselves incompetent. This last year is the biggest proof that the system doesn't work. And yet they seem more than ever demanding that we follow what they want to do. Yeah. Yeah. No, we have to, I mean, long term and, and not too long term or we won't be there. Uh, we've got to have, we have to have media outlets that are better about providing us information instead of spin. We've got to have social media networks and platforms that we get to say what we want to say on, or we, you can't do that here. Well, let's go over here where you can. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, we are in a much different world than we were. And, and that's going to be the nature. I mean, you, you see how these things go. It's not like technology is going to start to slow down a whole lot. The advances keep coming. They keep coming faster. And we've got to get a handle on, on free speech because, you know, America is not a free country if you can't say what you want to say. Or hear what you want to hear. Yes. And then have a debate about it with people you don't agree with. And if they keep on wanting to shut us up for disagreeing with them, I, this is not a recipe for anything but disaster. Yes. And uh, I, I am not impressed with the leadership at present. Anyway, I think that was an episode. I think so, too. And uh, it, it is, you know, it... it a lot of times on Friday, you know, we have kind of a, a more lighter, happier. And uh, you look at this week and it's, it's five stories that aren't really all that good. Um, but it is what it is. And we, you know, it, it the, the, to me, we have such ability to affect it. And it's, you know, when you think about, like I think about the people in Hong Kong, what do they do? I mean, they've done all kinds of things, but what do they possibly do without outside help to get free from this monster government that controls them? And we look at all these things that we don't like happening in our country, but the one thing, and I'm not, I, I, I'm no naive, you know, uh, uh, person in terms of, you know, the government just always abiding by the right rules. I've done a lot of political work where I think we got screwed uh, by a court or a politician or what have you, but we still have the ability to speak out in a lot of ways. We have elections. There are all kinds of things we can do. The problem is they're getting tougher to do. And I think people like, you know, we're, we're in a situation now where all last year, there's a lot of money being pumped into people's pockets. Biden seems to want to pump money into people's pockets left and right. And the, the news media, and we've done several pieces about this, 
uh, Washington Post constantly in opinion pieces and even in news pieces suggests that, oh, that's smart politics. But um, they will buy us off with our own money if we're for sale. And uh, there, there is no problem in America, I think, that we could, can't solve if the public is aware and engaged and even somewhat united. And that's, of course, I think why you see like the so many of these let's hate the, the people who like masks we hate, the people who don't like masks. We're, they will split us up all night and day because we can't really effectively throw the bums out if we're, if we're too busy fighting each other. Um, and, and, and some of these fights you have to fight. It's like, uh, you know, the critical race theory and all these types of things that, you know, you might think, well, that's not really such a big deal. It's more the economy and it's foreign policy. And so, which you can't ignore that or they basically, you know, turn your country into a place where you're supposed to hate everybody and decide at first sight whether someone is an oppressor or really probably a really nice guy. Um, you know, you can't judge a book by, uh, by its cover, but you can judge your neighbor by their color. And, uh, you know, so we have all of these fights that will rip us apart. We have to be careful to not exacerbate that. We, had, we still have to fight, but it's, uh, it, it does seem like America is just being ripped so many different ways. And, um, and I think it's something that, you know, if I were, you know, the, the butchers of Beijing, or if I were Putin in Russia, I would like that. I would see that to my advantage. And, um, and it, it, I think it's scary. I, maybe 10 years ago, I thought as a, as a, I was telling somebody as a libertarian, I've started to worry about the lack of any legitimacy to the government. I've started to worry about that. And it just doesn't seem like something I should be worried about because frankly, I don't think the government's legitimate. <laughs> so, you know, the fact that other people are picking up on that is, is not a bad thing. It's a good thing, except there's, you know, you can look at the word legitimate in a, in a couple of different ways. What I'm talking about, what scares me is that even in this COVID, we got a pandemic. We've got all these deaths that we're hearing about all the time on the media, but there's no real pulling together. We're all, we're just going to be dictated to by experts. And then when the experts are gone, we're going to be dictated to by, you know, completely vacant minded, you know, TV talking heads as if they know everything. And then when they change it all tomorrow, they're going to say it as if they knew it all along. Um, I don't know where I was going with that. <laughs> well, we I'm so tired. I got up at 6.30, so. Yeah, and maybe we should confess that normally we uh, do these things at the latest, like 8 or 9 o'clock at night, your time. And now we're doing it almost one o'clock in the morning, my time. So that's, this is a little bit later than usual for us to do these kind of uh, programs. And uh, I was just thinking, as you were talking about uh, uh, being bought off and uh, the 
populace being bought off by government. Uh, the general rule should be, if it's a politician feeding you, bite the hand. You've been suckered into a bad deal. Yes, people forget that, you know, if, if you are dependent on somebody else, that's not a good situation. You want to be independent and in every way possible. They are seeking to create a dependence among anybody they possibly can. And, you know, at the, at the end of the day, if you believe that experts will do everything, I mean, it's almost like we're, we're looking forward to a world in which the big corporations produce all this wealth and then it's all sprinkled down to everybody so that if you never want to work again, you're still going to get whatever stuff that you would want. And, and people somehow think that it's going to work that way. And I just don't think it ever has or ever will. But it's, it, people are not as reluctant to take government money. It's almost, well, they should pay for all colleges or they should, you know, mass transit should be free. Everything should be free. And it, it strikes me that it's like, the, I, I remember thinking about Iraq back in the, in the uh, 90s or, or 2000s after the attack and so on. And it just seemed like they had all these young people with nothing to do no job. They're getting money from the state because of the oil and other stuff. But it's like these, these oil wealthy countries that because they have no freedom and no real economic activity other than extract the oil, sell it, now we're rich, um, their population is miserable. And, you know, we'll, we'll be the same way. I can't imagine uh, living in a country in which everything is just provided by the government and you can work or not work or, uh, and you know, I guess when you're struggling, that sounds good, but you know, to anybody, I think takes a step back and looks at history. It sounds really bad. It sounds like you have just handed away what, what is so, so important. And that is the freedom to live your life instead of the life that some bureaucrat or politician or scientist, or whoever, or Mark Zuckerberg wants you to live. Well, that was This Week of Common Sense, starring Paul Jacob, for the second week of June 2021. My name is Timothy Verkula, and I invite you to click the bell and put all the likes and say nice things on social media and share these podcasts. And no matter what else you do, Visit Paul five days a week at thisiscommonsense.org. That's where he writes commentary and has been doing so since 1999.